0: Greetings, this is the podcast Byzantium and friends, I am Anthony, your host. I have some great news. Uh, The big book is out. I just received my copies a few days ago. Uh, This is the big history of the Eastern Roman Empire from beginning to end that I've been working on, oh, on and off since 2015. Uh, so it is now out, and uh, I must say the uh, the production team at Oxford did a wonderful job with it. It looks gorgeous, and anyway, it's done, so I can now stop reading everything that's being published. Anyway, check it out if you get a chance. It is not a textbook as such, though. I suppose it can be used as one. It is a history. I don't think that I will speak more about this book on this podcast, however, Robin Pearson uh, host of the podcast, A uh, History of Byzantium, and I have been recording some episodes where I talk about some of the lessons that I learned from writing this book and some of the new models that have emerged for the study of East Roman culture. Um, and so he's posting them on his podcast. So if you want to hear me more than my guests, that's what this podcast is for. So go check out Robin's uh, History of Byzantium podcast. Uh, he's, he'll be uploading those gradually uh, over the coming weeks. Actually, one of the episodes that we recorded, Robin and I, um, focus a lot on the law. The law, both in itself and how it functioned within Roman society, but also as a kind of template for its Christianization as well. And it is a topic that I got more and more involved in as I was researching and writing the book. Because I increasingly realized that the law was far more important than... Most historians of Byzantium traditionally had understood, and that it did a lot more than what people realize. So it wasn't just, you know, c- criminal system or just juster inheritances. Um, <laughs> you know, there was a question about the efficacy of East Roman law is not in, you know, how and whether it was being applied in the courtroom, especially in criminal cases. There's a lot more to it than that, and I discuss a little bit of that in this episode where I was fortunate enough to find um, a, an expert in Byzantine law whom I really, really admire for a number of reasons, but also because we've entered a phase where that field um, in many ways needs to sort of find a new voice and a new footing. But for reasons that we talk about a little bit in the discussion, there was a whole team of scholars working on Byzantine law and especially editing the text in the 20th century um, and now we've entered a different phase in the history of that field. Um, and my guest is, is and certainly will be one of the leaders in that field. She is Daphne Penna, the University of Groningen um, in the Netherlands. And I actually relied on her work, her more technical work, uh, quite a bit in writing the big history, especially in the um, legal aspects of the treaties between Constantinople and some of the Italian uh, republics and also their economic dimensions um, which Daphne also works on so I had at the time deemed that material a little bit too esoteric for the podcast uh, though very useful to me as a historian and uh, I now I saw that she and co-author Ruth Mayering have published a source book of Byzantine law no it's called a source book on Byzantine law illustrating Byzantine law through the sources which has translations of very important sources plus a great deal of um, sort of introduction and explanatory notes and so forth, which I immediately realized will be one of the key gateways um, into questions of East Roman slash Byzantine slash later Roman law. And it provided a wonderful opportunity to have her onto the podcast and talk with her about what is Byzantine law, where is the field going, and so forth. Uh, some notes before we begin the discussion. Uh, there are some terms that we use in it that we know but maybe not everybody knows. So sometimes we mention the term novel. That does not refer to like a work of fiction like a romance novel. Uh, that's a technical term in late Roman law which refers to basically a, an edict of some sort issued by an emperor. I don't wanna get into the technical um, aspects here. I mean, more technically, an edict or a law issued after some sort of compilation. So the laws that Justinian issued after the Codex was compiled in 534, those are called novellae, but we use the term by extension for all laws issued by emperors um, in Constantinople after that. So that's what novel means. Uh, We also refer to canon law. Canon law are the rules that govern the administration of the church the life of the clergy but also of monasticism and the interactions between the church and the laity. These rules are discussed and sort of ratified at the councils and especially the ecumenical councils but also smaller councils could issue their own canons and then canon law developed its own tradition of commentary where people are um, trying to explain the the, the original intent or the circumstances under which it applies or to clarify obscure terminology and so forth. So we talk about that as well. Daphne also asked me to mention, because she's involved in this project also, um, there's a a great um, Greek scholar of Byzantine law called Spirit Troianos, and he has um, he's, he's very old and he's written some of the fundamental works in the field. Unfortunately, not translated yet into English. Um, and he has donated his library to the Dutch Institute in Athens, which is close to the Acropolis, uh, which has now cataloged the books. There are about 2,000 of them. They're a complete edition of all uh, you know Byzantine law texts. And so she's involved and Hernigan is involved also. And she wanted me to let you know that scholars can use this. Um, There is a catalog online and so this would be a great resource too and another reason to go to Athens, I suppose. So I'll stop there and we'll get to the conversation with Daphne. First, apologies if you can hear Marjorie playing upstairs in the background. I think she has a recital coming up and the practicing has been furious in the past few weeks. And also thanks to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes. So let's get to it. Here is Daphne. Daphne, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Anthony.
0: I'm really pleased that we had the opportunity to do this. And I'll tell you why. Because I've used your work a lot, especially your dissertation. When I was writing the big history of Byzantium, it was invaluable for this was for treaties between Constantinople and the Venetians, mostly, but also other Italian cities. And it's one of the very few dissertations that I like, maybe they're like, they were like, 10 or something that for the entire history of Byzantium, like I really relied on. And I was very impressed by your work and and other some other specialized articles that you've written, which are on fascinating topics. And yet they were, I think, too specialized to devote a podcast to. I mean, I think the audience would have just kind of been lost. So I was really happy that you published this source book on Byzantine law, uh, because it was a way to get you on the podcast. And I think it's a much more Accessible book, and this is a book that you co-edited with uh, Roos Meier-Meyering.
1: Yeah, I, I. That's true. It's a. I. It's a co-author. It's Roos uh a nice Dutch name, yeah. Meyering, uh, a good colleague of me, of mine, who we've been teaching together Byzantine law for many years. This is now uh, an emerita. So we we are both we are both authors authors of this book. Yeah, and it's based yeah. on our teaching. Yeah.
0: Yes, and I saw some public lectures that you gave, um, and you're also a very eloquent advocate for your field, let's say Byzantine law, and I think that Byzantine law is like not very well served generally. Like I think it might be going through a kind of crisis in terms of like how many people are working on it, and I think we need more people, so I hope that this might spark some interest. Um, anyway... So before we get into any sort of technical questions, could you just tell us what exactly Byzantine law is? And like, when do we think that it begins and ends? What is it as a, as a corpus?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, thank you, first of all, for your comments. Uh, I hope uh, podcasts will be interesting for more people. Byzantine law. Uh, I think this is something that you've addressed in more podcasts about the word Byzantine, because begins with the word Byzantine, and that's a term that's a fake term or a made-up term. So Byzantine law doesn't really exist as such a term. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, Byzantine law is actually the law of the Eastern Roman Empire. And if we want to define it in in a simple way, I think we can say that Byzantine law is a Roman law, but then in Greek. At least this is how it began. Mm. Um, that's a definition.
0: Now, the Roman law had been appearing in Greek, for example, in Greek translations of Roman statutes and so on in the East, which we have in inscriptions from like the Republican period, right? So there's like a long period when Roman law is learning to operate in Greek and when the Eastern provinces are learning to live by Roman laws. And by the time Justinian kind of changes the language... It's it's not like a a really revolutionary change, right? Well,
1: um, perhaps this this is has to do with when when does it actually start? You're right in saying that. Um, well, first of all, it's it's always tricky when you put a timeline or borders, and you know mm. we historians love to do that. That's that's also tricky sometimes. But if you really want to draw a line, I think it's fair enough to say that Byzantine law begins with Justinian, and I can explain why. Um, but um, it has to do with his legislation. Uh, so Justinian, um, as most of your listeners would know, um, well, he was an emperor in the 6th century and he issued a very important legislation consisting of four parts and uh, he codified Roman law, you could say, and most of this legislation was issued in Latin. And that was a bit of a problem in this period, because most of the people in the Eastern Roman Empire, Justinian was an emperor in the East, was uh, were uh, Greek-speaking, so Greek was the dominant language. So there you had this majestic legislation of Justinian. He was very proud about it, um, but people couldn't understand it. So what happened was, um, at that time, shortly after the promulgation of, of Justinian's legislation, uh, jurists... In fact, the law professors at the time of Justinian started to make Greek versions of the different parts of Justinian uh, Justinian's legislation in Greek. So they made Greek commentaries, Greek adaptations, Greek versions uh, of all of the parts. Um, and this transition from Latin into Greek marks the beginning of Byzantine law, you could say. Um, this doesn't mean that you're right. This doesn't mean that, that Greek wasn't used before in, in legal circles. I mean, one of the, one of our Roman jurists, Modestinus, uh, he was, uh, uh, one of the great, uh, Roman jurists, um, who lived in the, um, middle of the third century AD. He wrote a lot in Greek. Hmm. So, but if you really want to draw a line, this transition from, from, um, Latin into Greek by the law professors at the time of Justinian, They were called, by the way, Uh, antecessors. Antecessor is a name to describe the law professors at the time of Justinian. Um, And I think this is also logical. If you want to teach a text that's in another language, the first thing you do is you translate it in your own language. Mm -hmm. Or in any case, you... And if you start to translate, you interpret the text. So that's what I mean, this transition from Latin to Greek, marks the beginning of Byzantine law. Right. And this is something that that um, um, a modern scholar uh, Bernard Stolte has 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 written several articles on this uh, um, topic. Uh, Stolte is a meritus uh, professor of Byzantine law at the University of Groningen, where he speaks about this beginning of Byzantine law, the birth. Yeah. And, I would say that these law professors who started writing uh, the Greek summaries and the Greek comments, I think you can call them the godfathers of Byzantine law.
0: (laughs) Right. Right, because if I understand it correctly, the translations that they made or renditions. Yeah. um, Yeah, they're not... They're not translations.
1: Yeah. They're adaptations, you would say. Yeah.
0: Yes, because they preserve a lot of the Latin vocabulary, even in, in Greek. In fact, I just got... I hear, have you seen this? Eleanor Dickey's um, Latin loanwords in ancient Greek?
1: Not yet. <laughs> it's,
0: yeah, it just came out. It's like 800 pages. And it's basically a dictionary of Latin yeah. terms in Greek in this period. A, a lot of them are Latin. I mean, law. Um, so, anyway. Oh,
1: yes. And not on just in this period. Yeah. Also later on. And we'll exactly. see. Exactly.
0: So if I understand it correctly, those translations that they made later were the basis, like the the textual basis for the Basilica, which were issued like around 900 and were like the standard later version of Roman law in Greek. Exactly. Yeah,
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, The Basilica was issued, as you said, later on, so around 900. And if you want to define it again in, in a brief way, you would say it's Justinianic law, but then in Greek. Because right. by then you had all these different versions of of different parts of Justinian's legislation. I didn't mention the parts. Should I mention them? I don't know.
0: Uh, you uh, mean the the book, the, the codex, different-
1: the digest, the, the 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 institutes and the novels. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the novels were in Greek, by the way, but the rest was in Latin for uh big for the greatest part. So by the time um of this uh, Macedonian dynasty, you had all these Greek versions of different parts of Justinian's legislation. So they thought it's good to have one big legal combination that would, yeah, how do you say, encapsulate the whole mm. of Justinianic legislation, but then in Greek. Mm-hmm. And they used, as you said, as a base, um, well, writings uh, from the undercessors for a big part. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and in a certain sense, Justinian's legal team is also doing something like that. And this is often like, I find that that, classical historians and uh, scholars who work on ancient Roman law often don't appreciate or, or don't wanna always come to grips with the fact that like often what we call Roman law is what Justinian's team said it was. And they're compiling, they're abridging, they're editing. And I think they left out like whole categories of Roman law that were simply no longer relevant in the 6th century AD. Um, For example, like just the other day, I was coming, I was reading a discussion of how Roman law and local Greek law interfaced in the eastern provinces, like before the Antonine decree, you know, in 212 that gave Roman citizenship to everybody and made Roman law um, sort of applicable to everybody. And all of those regulations about how these two systems are supposed to mesh are just kind of absent from the digest because they were just no longer relevant by the 6th century. And, yes. Yeah.
1: And I think also Justinian's goal was also to make a codification. So the digest is a codification, which means that it is exclusive. So yeah. so he... he because we speak about the digest i think it's good to know what that is because that is the i think that is the most important work from justinian's legislation as far as the history of european private law is concerned yeah. because the digest consists of fragments of the uh, opinions of the best roman jurists who had lived mostly in the 2nd and 3rd century AD yeah. so all this knowledge was was uh, uh, Put into one this book. It's it's an enormous book. It's to give you an idea. It's one and a half times the times the Bible, and it's considered one law. Eh? It's, it has the status right. of one law. It's one uh, law. So and if in fact Justinian says it's he speaks through the mouth of the Roman jurists. Yes. Um, yeah.
0: Yes. It's, it, yes. It's extraordinary the 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 way in which these very very large texts could be issued as single laws, um, which is a tradition that continued um so and and
1: Justinian spoke about to to about that he said that there are no contradictions to be found in this uh, and he said if you if you find one think again <laughs> yes. uh, so uh um at that time yeah he he believed that there was one law uh, that could uh well be used for you could use it everywhere
0: so there's this paradoxical situation where you know byzantine law in quotation marks begins at this point but in a certain sense, so does Roman law, like classical Roman law, because that's our main source for it. Now, obviously, we can reconstruct its history before that, and there are inscriptions and you know, papyri and, and texts that refer to laws that don't exist and so on. But it's fair to say that Justinian's um, corpus is also the main source for the study of Roman law. Um, and so these, these two fields are kind of conjoined in that way. And yet i have the sense that ancient roman law has received a considerable degree of of scholarly attention and byzantine law has not so why has so what explains that imbalance so that the latin material leading down to justinian has been studied very very much in fact it's central to the legal traditions of many modern countries But the Greek version of the same body of law is relegated to very small circles of Byzantine specialists.
1: Yes. Well, I think there's a short answer and a longer answer to this. The short answer is that, well, Byzantine law is in Greek. So you have less scholars who know Greek. Most of them know Latin. But the the long answer is that most of the modern scholars are interested in Roman law. Uh, Roman law is the base and I, I'm simplifying here things, is the base of most uh, civil codes in, in, in Europe. Um, the Roman jurists had discussed many legal questions and had uh, come up with many solutions and I have to explain here that the legal questions remain always the same. The society changes and of course it's a different society now. I mean, the the concept of family is very different in roman Mm -hmm. times than now but the legal questions i speak about the legal questions how do you become an owner how do you lose ownership what happens if you buy something and it has a defect all these legal questions were explained discussed in detail by the roman jurists so um and they have they still have answers to modern to modern to contemporary legal problems and again i'm simplifying things and i'm i'm uh, running through the history but the core of most uh, civil codes is based on roman law so roman law it's still um, uh, in use and it's still people use it also to compare different legal systems and this explains why people are interested in justinian's legislation because as you said as we said it codified roman law and you're right in this the roman law we know comes most of it from the text of justinian this is how it's being preserved for a big part mm-hmm. Um, so by studying this early, well, Byzantine law, now it's the term, right. uh, Romanists have an interest in this because they can learn more about the actual Roman law, but they're not interested in what happened after. Uh, I think again, it has to do with, um, the bad reputation also of the word Byzantine, like Byzantine law is considered by many as a decadent, uh, bad echo of Roman law, which is not always the case, I think. Um, And what I find personally, um, well, frustrating as a legal historian, now frustrating is a big word, but we have a lot of books on European legal history and they all discuss, well, they all have to refer to Justinian because uh, Mm -hmm. it goes back to Roman law and his legislation. But in the West, um, there was a gap between the 6th century and the 11th century. Roman law was forgotten more or less. And when I speak of Roman law, I mean the Digest, which, as I explained, was the most sophisticated text because it it consisted of the of the fragments of the opinions of Roman jurists. So this was forgotten in the West, and suddenly, in the end of the, the end of the 11th century, beginning of the 12th, 12th, you have a rediscovery of Roman law in Italy, in Bologna, and then Roman law is spread throughout Europe, more or less. But in the East, there was no gap. In the East, you have We talked about the law professors at the time of Justinian who uh, adapted uh, the text and brought Greek uh, versions. And so Roman law became Byzantine, you would say, and and continued. So you have a continuation in the East and that's not being even mentioned in in modern books. So that's something Mm -hmm. that, um, yeah, that I think it's not fair because there's a lot of well, you can use Byzantine law also to explain Roman law, but there's also a, a big development of Byzantine law as well that's been left out.
0: Yes, and you're exactly right. I think the term Byzantine is off-putting, um, especially because it suggests that something is convoluted, co- complicated, and, and sort of decadent. But you know, there's a, a so there's a paradoxical way in which the, our concept of Byzantium has been shaped by these legal priorities, and I've kind of been researching that on on my on the side in the following way because justinian became so central to the legal traditions in western europe after 1100 when western writers were trying to decide where rome ends and byzantium begins there's this very prominent tradition that puts that break at justinian and does so for the sole reason of keeping the corpus for the Roman slash Latin slash Western tradition. And oh, everything after that is Byzantine, we don't care about it, right? As opposed to say, putting it at Constantinople, the foundation of Constantinople and Constantine, whatever, because then that would put the corpus squarely in Byzantine territory, which is... So you see this these efforts and these start in the Middle Ages. As I've seen it in the 12th century, where they're saying, "Well, the the Romans lasted until just like Justinian, and after that, it's the Greeks."
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And it's just for that reason.
1: No, that that's that's true. Yeah, and in fact, you see that in the Byzantine legal tradition, the the rediscovery of Roman law in the West began at the end of the 11th, beginning 12th century. In the same period. There is a small revival of legal studies in, in Constantinople as well. Mm. But there are also, we refer to the basilica. The basilica, we said it's it's a legal compilation uh, around, it was issued around 900 and it, it's, a, it's a massive legal compilation that reflects Justinianic law, but then in Greek, except from the basilica text, later you have Basilica scholia, so comments on the basilica, which are distinguished in two categories, the old, which date from the, the law professors of the time of Justinian, and were added to the text of the Basilica because they could help the interpretation of the text. And the new Basilica scholia, and that's where I'm coming to, which are comments made by Byzantine jurists of the 11th and 12th century on the Corpus Juris, on on, on Justinian's legislation. So there you can have a very nice comparison between the comments, the glossy we say of the medieval civilians in the West, Mm. with the corresponding or relevant scholia comments of the 11th, 12th century Byzantine jurists on the same texts. And these Byzantine jurists are closer to the texts, not only geographically, as uh, a colleague of mine has said, Bransma, but also uh, as content, because they they have been faithful. The Roman law, again, was never interrupted in the East
0: yeah and those scolia by the way contain really fascinating observations there's like little gems in there yeah i i sometimes i mean so this is a very big edition of this it's many many volumes the text itself the scolia itself so it's it's not always easy to go looking for this the scolia all the time but sometimes when i look at the the greek version of one of the digest um entries i I go look at the scolia just kind of see what opinions i'll find some of them are very interesting um so let's get to the question of why this field is considered sort of hard and esoteric and kind of difficult to, by the way, I don't find the Greek to be especially mm. difficult. Mm. It, it's, it's not, it's certainly not compared to orations. I mean, Byzantine orations that can be really, you know, tough nuts to crack, but the legal texts, I, I generally find them straightforward, but so, so why does it have this reputation of being this very obscure and difficult field to enter?
1: Well, uh, well, you have to know Greek, as you said, but well, if the is Greek that. is not a is not a problem. Well, the problem is um, it's also legal Greek. So, I think we said earlier on that um, legal terms remained in Latin.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: you said in the sixth century, but actually, even in the eleventh, twelfth century, the 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 legal jargon, how do you call it? It yeah. it it it, it uh, survived in Latin for many many centuries. And when I say Latin, either in Latin letters or transliterated in Greek letters, but then a Latin term. So you need to know Roman law. Uh, so perhaps you can read the Latin, but I'm not sure if you could understand. Uh, sorry, you can read the Greek, but it's not always easy to understand what it says because it's technical mm-hmm. Greek because right. you need a, you need the legal terminology. So you need a background of Roman law um, when you see a term in transliterated um, Greek letters. Um, And another thing, uh, Byzantine legal texts have many layers. I I refer to the Basilica. The Basilica Text and Scholia, which now we have a critical edition, which consists of 17 volumes, uh, it has many layers. So yes, the text dates from, um, well, we say it was issued around 900, but actually It consists of earlier uh, writings and the scholia, as I said, you have two categories. There are different dates. Mm -hmm. So when you see a legal source, I think it's important to know what exactly it is and from which period before you come to conclusions or or observations. So it's a bit like an archaeologist digging into the different layers of of the sources. So you have the Greek, the legal uh, terminology, so you need Roman law the different layers. And we still do not have um, good critical additions in, in Byzantine law, or sometimes we don't even have any addition at all. So there's a lot of work to be made there.
0: Yeah, so based on what you said, I'm going to take back what I said earlier in, in, the, <laughs> following, in the following sense. The Greek is easy, but the words are often used with a technical sense that even if they're indigenous Greek words, that you might look up in the dictionary and they mean this and this. So no, in a legal context they might often mean something completely different. And so you have to know that okay, I'm switching into legal jargon now. Exactly. Yeah, and even terms that you think you recognize, like if it's a Latin term then you know that okay, this has a technical legal sense and you look it up and that's that's actually easier than the deceptively Greek term that's actually there's a a Latin Roman meaning behind it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Okay. Um you no, that's fair. It's it's more complicated than it seems. So how did Byzantine jurists or whoever used Roman law in Byzantium 11th, 12th century? How did they cope with these problems? Like was it difficult for them to access it? Did, did they have like some sort of shortcuts or or handbooks to help them?
1: Um yeah, 11th century. Um you know, when you say, how, did the Byzantines think that law is difficult? Uh, it, it really reminds me of, of the opening, uh, words of, you know, Pselos, the, the, Pselos wrote a, a didactic, a legal didactic poem, the synopsis on Nomon. So he wrote it for the future emperor, um, was it Michael VII, I think, Dukas? Uh, mm-hmm. So, after the order of the emperor, he had to write. So, the, the, the idea was he said to Pselos, write a text that uh, explaining law in a simple way, in an easy way for the future emperor. And Pselos begins the poem and he wrote it in verses because probably it was easier to memorize. So, Pselos begins by saying, Oh, law is so difficult. Oh, law is so chaotic. Oh, law is so, uh, uh, well, difficult, but it is necessary, he says. So, it was hard um also to to define what law is probably then uh but yes they had shortcuts um we spoke about the basilica it was an enormous work um in fact not everybody could possess the basilica so um, after the basilica you see that there are many uh, works that derive from the basilica that either summarize it um or um it's a sort of tool to the basilica um so these works were used more often in practice um i think also there's uh, if i'm not mistaken at some point um it's the patriarch of alexandria who asks Balsamon, the great canonist he says to him um we know about the basilica but we here in alexandria we don't have the books is that Mm -hmm. the problem and Balsamon says, well, for people who live in the capital, there's no excuse because they can go and consult. But for people who are outside, uh, you are excused from not knowing the basilica. So that's an interesting uh, uh, testimony on, on um, well, on the application of the basilica or how difficult it was to find, to go back to your question.
0: yeah. Do we have a sense for how much Latin they may have known at that point? So legal experts in Constantinople in the you know, 11th and 12th centuries, did, did, how much Latin would they have known?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a question that really intrigues me. I wish I knew it's, a, yeah. it's I find it very interesting. And um, personally, I think from what I've read and some hints and speculations that probably Byzantine jurists, at least some of them, knew more Latin than we think. And the reason I say this has to do with um, some um, well, some information of some sources that I've come across, and from uh, work of colleagues that uh, I've 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 read. To give you an example, um, we said that I think I mentioned that in the middle of the 11th century, there's a revival of legal studies in Constantinople. Uh, the Emperor Constantine IX, the Ninth, the Monomachos, he founded a law school. In fact, there are many questions whether he actually founded a law school. What he did was, is mm-hmm. he appointed Xiphilinos as the head of the law school in Constantinople. He appointed him as the Nomophilax, the guardian of the laws. Um, and Pselos was appointed the head of the philosophy school. So um, in this novel, by which uh, Constantine the Ninth, uh, the Monomachos uh, appoints Cypellinos, he says that the nomophylax should know both Greek and Latin. That's mm. one indication. Another indication that that uh, I found in some sources is that we have some Byzantine jurists from this period, eleventh century, that actually. I think from their writings, we can understand that they have actually consulted original Justinianic legislation, the Digest. I don't want to tire you now with details, mm. but you can see from the way some terms are formed that, for example, Xifilinos, uh it seems that he actually had consulted the Digest. I mean, this is again, I, c- I can't say this with certainty and, and I don't want to be, um, um, I'd like to be a bit reserved in this, but there are some hints I think the whole problem or the whole issue is also related to libraries in Constantinople. We know that they kept important legal manuscripts, uh, so um, they must have had manuscripts of the Digest. Yeah. They were in Latin. Someone must have then read them. Okay, not everybody, but there must have been a circle that that could uh, that could uh, understand read Latin. I think. And again, I cannot be one hundred percent sure but there are some speculations and indications here and hints that I think, but there's a work, there's work to be done here. Yeah.
0: Um, Yes. I very much look forward to to that. I I heard you speak about that topic and it's very intriguing uh, because I think you're right. I mean, the, the libraries would have preserved uh, a a lot of Latin texts and certainly the, um, the, the, the corpus would have been among them. But anyway, so, Let's stick with the jurists uh, for a little while longer. or Byzantine commentators um, on the laws or legal scholars, did they make any um, interesting or distinctive contributions to legal theory or to the development of Roman law and applying it to you know new circumstances as they came up? Um, I mean, just a few examples or or one example would suffice just to give the audience a sense of how they were engaging with this material.
1: Yeah, since we are, we are in the 11th century, so I'll stick a bit in the... Um, also, I'll refer to some material that I know of, I've researched. Um, and a name that comes to mind is um, a, a jurist from the 12th century. Um, his name was Agio Theodorides and he wrote Scholia on the Basilica. So I, I, I think we mentioned what the Scholia are. So he, these are the new scholia, the, the 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 ones written by the the younger generation, 11th, 12th century. So Iutodoritis is a jurist. We don't know a lot about him um, of the 12th century, and the reason I refer to him because um, he has written around 200 scholia on the Basilica, uh, which are rather lengthy. So it's it's a good material to to study. It's not one or two. It's 200, which are a rather lengthy piece of uh, um, scholia, and um he discusses questions like um well there's a lot of about theft damage to uh wrongful damage to property liability issues um, and from what i've seen his Holia, um well you can see that he has a rather uh, a high uh, level of of legal knowledge and uh, he is capable of of also um, he knows the basilica, by the way, uh, but he can also produce some theoretical um,
0: the distinctions or
1: distinctions. Yeah, there are a lot of distinctions of him, but I, I think he, he has a high scientific. High, he has a high standard of, science, of legal knowledge, and I think that his historia is definitely worth studying. Um, I think they will be studied in the future. So that's one name, and um, a second name is um no not a name actually it's the author of uh, a work from the 11th century the, the the work is a treatise on it's called the meditatio de nudis pactis so it's the treatise on mere agreements or bare agreements a bare agreement in roman law pactum nudum was an informal agreement for which you had no action so you couldn't go to court so the author of this treatise, again, it's a treatise of the 11th century, the author of this treatise um, makes an exposition of the theory of contracts. So that's a rather remarkable text, actually, which has been studied the last uh, years by more scholars. So that's two two works or two uh, that I can think of from 11th to 12th century, but I'm sure there are more.
0: Yes, and we are a long way from you know having studied these texts and their authors in a systematic way i mean, just like you said uh, picking out an author so reconstructing an uh, an author from the scolia is difficult um i mean homer scholars haven't yet done it with the scolia on homer <laughs> we're yeah. a long way from doing it in, in byzantine law but it it's very promising um area of research because so once you reconstruct them and you see that there's a kind of coherence to the way they're thinking about things um and so this Brings me to the question of like, what is the, what are the, should be the goals of the study of Byzantine law moving forward? Because there are, there are a number of things that you can imagine the field doing. So, one is editing the text, which is absolutely necessary for anything else to happen. Um, we can trace the evolution of legal thinking, um, working again, solely within the texts themselves and a lot of legal scholarship does this it's kind of like it operates in the kind of you know bubble of legal thinking and you know without a sort of relation necessarily to the society around it but there is some scholarship that's looking at like the application of law as an instrument of of of, of governance or of resolving disputes like on a practical level right and that's That gets you into all kinds of other sources, um, some non-legal sources that are talking about this. So is there anything else um, that should be added to that mix? And I think as we're moving forward, I I think the emphasis is going to be more on the practical application of the law in in kind of social life. Um, But are there any other kinds of approaches that you would want to mention or comment on those? where are we right now
1: i think it really depends on who is we <laughs> i mean you know like uh, every scholar has a different uh, uh, approach in what he wants to 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 use byzantine law for i mean you know there was this discussion between um byzantine legal historians and byzantine historians Mm -hmm. do do we need a new history of of byzantine law a a legal historian is interested as you said in principle in the development of a legal rule uh, of a legal um, concept and as i said um, byzantine law can help us to better understand roman law so there are a lot of romanists out there who want to use uh, byzantine law for that reason but there are also uh, legal historians who want to use byzantine law in order to see the development of the whole concept throughout the byzantine uh, period Um, and there are historians who want to use byzantine law for for other reasons to to um, find out perhaps um, things about the society in a particular period uh, things about the uh, administration so personally I'm very open to to any uh, way that you will research it um, I'm also interested sometimes to see the well the dogmatic uh, development of a, of a rule but I'm also open and I have done this in in, in my writings of uh, understanding law um, of, of using law of, of of cooperating also with other scholars from other disciplines and learning from them so I'm rather open to this, um, how you use Byzantine law. But again, it, it's really about what you want to find out.
0: Yes. So I mentioned at the beginning your dissertation, which, and I think this that is a good example of this because you kind of performed a legal but also historical analysis on the treaties between Constantinople and the Italian um, cities. Um, where you were doing both a legal analysis of you know their actual provisions, but also like situating them in the historical context and what did they mean for the people uh, making these these agreements. Uh, so I, I thought it was sort of exemplary in that way um, i have I have a broader concern about the way that we study so here's something that I've become sensitive to and that I think is a problematic approach so there's and this is an approach among general historians that the law and we mean here the roman law or byzantine law or whatever is this kind of an abstract esoteric body of knowledge that very few people knew and has very little relevance to the kind of day-to-day it's like an imperial thing and you, you know how recently it's increasingly studied as a um an aspect of business, of imperial rhetoric like yeah this is just kind of the image that the emperor wanted to give or whatever um and that it's kind of removed from the day-to-day concerns of ordinary people i actually think that is entirely wrong like in my study of the the long roman empire i think that social relations economic relations as close to the ground as you can get, we're fundamentally structured by the concepts of of, of this body of law. And you actually even find Church Fathers saying this. Like, uh, John Chrysostom is a very good example. I mean, he says that every time you have a relation of property, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, movable, like goods, or immovable, like uh, real estate, or a person, like slavery. There are, the, the whole thing is sustained by imperial law, right? And yet I read these studies, like that, of like village life in, it could be anything, it could be late antique Egypt, it could be 11th century Asia Minor. And they're like, well, the imperial authorities are distant and not really relevant, and people on the ground kind of worked it out on their own, and every time you get into the details, yeah, no, it's about property. it's about dowries. It's about and they're working through those problems, which are the problems of village life, entirely through the concepts of, of Roman law. Like they would have no rights to anything if it weren't for that. Um, their family structures are, according to that, and canon law also, which is the sort of ecclesiastical supplement. And so I, I think that general historians, like, you know, non-legal historians need to pay a lot more attention to these sources. I think they were fundamental. I mean, that's just the impression I get.
1: Yeah, I have to say here that most, um, if, you, if you read uh, most scholars, there is a problem with Byzantine law about its application. Um, and you will see in modern scholarship, there's often a distinction between Byzantine law in books and Byzantine law in action. Mm. Byzantine law in books are um, I think what they mean is we have a lot of laws, we have a lot of legal compilations, but where are they actually applied? The problem is that um, in Byzantine law we don't have so many sources which reflect legal practice we do have some sources and again there's work to be done there and make critical editions and study them and study them uh, broadly but um there is a lack of, of um, jurisprudence. One great exception, because I don't want to be always pessimistic, and we said that we need critical editions. One big exception is the Pyra. It's a work uh, of the. It's dated from the middle of the 11th century, and it's a unique work because it it, co- it consists of of fragments of the legal decisions and verdicts of a judge, Romaios, Uh, of a high court judge in Constantinople. Romaios was his name, Eustatius Romaios. And this uh, compilation was was written by an admirer of Romaios. And recently, very recently, some months ago, after many, many years, uh, the the critical edition was issued by, uh, well, more people worked on it, but it was Dieter Simon and Roderick Reinsch who completed it. So it's not just a critical edition. There's also um, a German translation and uh, German commentary and elaborated indexes. So I think that this work, the Paira, is really uh, a unique work. And I think the critical edition of Simon and Reins will bring... um, It's certainly worth going back to the material of the Paira and studying it again, because then we'll be able to make sound conclusions now that we have a good uh, edition.
0: Yes, twelve hundred (laughs) pages.
1: Yes, but you know, there's also indexes, yeah. So you (laughs) yes,
0: and lots of German. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. (laughs) I've used it. it. It's extraordinary, and yeah, the preliminary studies that we have of him is that he was actually following the the laws pretty closely, and even when he was deviating from their provisions, he he's clearly aware of what they were and has a reason for why he's doing that. Um, but so that is a, that text is let's put it on the optimistic side of how much the law was actually used in application by judges. Um, yeah. I, my position is that this runs a lot deeper. Um, in fact, I think the entire structure of East Roman society has a legal Scaffold. I, I talk about this a little bit in the history, but um, the social orders or social classes in Byzantium are largely legally defined. Like, what is a senator? What is a soldier? What is a you know uh, a registered farmer? What is a or even a priest or whatever? Those are legal categories, and what, what's fascinating to me is that you never find social classes in the non-legal sources that are different from the ones that you find in the legal sources. Like, they match. And there's some very few exceptions that are quickly normalized. Like, for example, monks and ascetics. In the early, very like, 4th century, uh, 4th and early 5th century, you have asceticism and you have monks. So these are people doing something outside the social order, and there's no legal framework for them until they made one after the fifth century and they're kind of normalized and regularized through canon law mostly but anyway okay i'm digressing on my own things but i i i came to appreciate just how important roman law is for just understanding the basic history here um and i hope that's taken up by by more uh, historians of Byzantium but what about Western historians and because you've made um, the case that Western scholars should be looking more at Byzantine materials, Uh, you mentioned earlier, some cases where the comparative study would be, uh, you know, fruitful. Um, Are there any other arguments that you want to make uh, here just for why Western historians should pay more attention to our material?
1: Well, as I said, I find strange that um Justinian is being mentioned in all the books and they don't say he was Byzantine for example yeah. and and but but uh I think what I said I'll stick to what I said about the comparison between uh especially because the 11th 12th century is the rediscovery of Roman law it's certainly worth making comparisons between both materials because they both have a common base um but well, even after I have to say, uh, you have the humanists uh, who also used Byzantine legal texts. And uh, but uh, my my main um, complaint or or well uh, observation here is that I haven't seen in any uh, book discussing European legal history um, something more about what happened in the East in this empire that lasted more than a thousand years. It's it's skipped. Yeah, that was the that was the the idea. Um, I don't have anything else I think and hopefully
0: your handbook um, will make this material much more accessible too for them I mean that's also necessary by the way like the main surveys of the best ones, the surveys of Byzantine law are in German and modern Greek
1: (laughs) yeah, yes it's true and there have been some uh, the last years there have been some uh, books some English books as well but um, yeah this is our book, the book by Rose Meyering and, and myself, it's I think it's the first English book which actually um, discusses a long uh, a wide range of, of sources with an English translation. Um so the idea, as I said, uh, was to it's based on our teaching. So the idea is to explain law like Pselos did, it's not in verses, but you know, in an easy yeah, and simple yeah, yeah. way uh, to the to the to the audience. Um that's why there are also some, we try to use some, you will see that the language is very uh, simple and we have, uh, we do not use footnotes, for example, uh, but we have, um, there are very few footnotes, but at the end of every section or every chapter, there's um, a bibliography if you're interested to continue reading. Um, there are a lot of uh, schematic approaches also that can help the, the student or the anyone who's reading the book to better yeah. understand, actually, what, what do these Byzantine legal sources look like and how are they related to each other? That was the idea. Because I have to say, we have a very important book by Spiros Troianos, which is in Greek and translated in, in uh, German as well, The Sources of Byzantine Law, which is a kind of Bible of yeah. Byzantine law. Very
0: but different. our
1: book is a very, very different uh, yeah.
0: uh, sort. Yeah, but they're complementary.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're complementary. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. I've relied on that book a lot. It, it's very useful. And there are all of these little weird sources, you know, around, like, we have the major, you know, planets like the Basilica and so on. But then there are all these little weird satellite texts. Um, like, there's this 11th century, uh, it's just a few pages. It's a history of Roman law, like, from the time of the kings in the Republic. mm Um, And Adeliatis also wrote uh, his, you know, his sort of, it's like a handbook of Roman law with a history from, again, from the Republic. And they're in Greek. And I just find them fascinating texts. If, you know, if those kinds of texts were written at that time in the West, there would be like so much bibliography about them. (laughs)
1: Yes, exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. I mean, the, the relevant gloss, yeah. the, the comments of the glossators, we call them. Yeah. Uh, these are the c- civilians, well, the, the the people who rediscovered the digest and wrote comments have been studied in detail,
0: yeah.
1: whereas we are still don't know. Uh, we still don't know who wrote them, how many they are, and... Uh, um, we still don't have editions uh critical editions about or translations. That's another problem of Byzantine law to go back that it is in Greek and there are no translations even of the Basilica or it's so I think if if works were translated they would be used of course by more scholars
0: so where do you see the state of the field right now is there so, so when I was in grad school there was a fairly robust group of scholars who were working on these texts and were producing a lot of good work, but now they're mostly retired or, or deceased and so on. Is there a next wave of scholars coming up? Uh, what do you see happening? Um
1: I think there was never a big audience for Byzantine law. It was always no. mod- modest, but we, we do have, well, first of all, Byzantine law is being taught in Greece, in the universities, in, at the law departments of Athens, the Saloniki, and Komotini. So there's big tradition there. Um, in, uh, well, in Groningen, we do our best to continue this tradition in research and teaching. And the source book is a testimony for that. Um, you have in Germany, Mainz is very, uh, um, mm. uh, uh well active in italy of course because roman law is always uh, there's always an interest of byzantine law because of roman law there um but i see there are more i mean in the last year i've also been uh, i see that historians reach out uh, to us Um, i refer to Groningen because this is where i work there are historians who deal with some Byzantine legal sources and they come to us and help and they want some help in what is this text exactly. So um, we had a cooperation with with France, with Sorbonne, and now with Germany, Hamburg. These are not legal historians. These are historians who deal with some Byzantine legal texts and want our expertise. So we help them in that and we learn from their discipline as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um I'm optimistic in the sense... I see that there are... Well, there's also an interest in canon law. That's exactly. also the last Absolutely. years. You yes. know, there there have been some uh, um, new uh, recent uh, N editions and uh, books about uh, canon law, Byzantine canon law, Southern Italy uh, and more. Um, so I'm, I'm not... Uh, I hope the source book will raise some interest. And I'm not pessimistic, but... Um it's maybe you don't have the big names as you said, because I refer to Groningen, to the Basilica, the Basilica, the critical edition was made in Groningen by Scheltema, who founded also the School of Byzantine Law in Groningen. That was mm-hmm. one school. Another important school was in Frankfurt with the uh, Max Planck für uh, Rechtsgeschichte that was directed by Dieter Simon and cooperated with Athens as well. So they have probably they, they they've also produced many, many uh, important uh, Byzantine legal texts. Um, Well, it's a pity that Max Planck stopped, but okay, there are also some German scholars who, or scholars in Germany who continue somehow uh, this uh, tradition.
0: Yes. Uh, Yeah, I'm optimistic also. And I think we should not look for... Like, I think that the era of the big names has passed, not because... The work that like we do like our generation does is not is good or anything it's just that we're just living in a very different institutional and social environment where big names are just not what our fields are producing and i think generally that's a good thing um at any rate i i, I have a lot of misgivings about the system that produced big names um let's do the work and you know i yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't want to see that system come back necessarily. Um, but be that as it may. So um, we're almost out of time. Um, any final thoughts or like, what's next for you? What are you doing next or anything else?
1: I'm now going out with my friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's next. <laughs> but uh, uh, I'm, I'm starting uh, to teach. But uh, Subject that I'm interested in, I think the following year would be Byzantine justice. Uh, I want to have a look, also because we have now this edition, as I said, of Paira. It's worth going back to this material, even if it is in German, (laughs) even if it's so many pages, to, you know, um, understand these cases better. Uh, And perhaps more uh, works from jurisprudence that could actually tell us was law applied or not and how. So I'm more interested in this Uh, well, concept and application Mm -hmm. of Byzantine justice, that's subject for the following year.
0: It's such a rich area. And I'm often struck by, I don't know how to put it, the humanity that is sometimes expressed in the verdicts here. And, you know, I don't know how yeah, I don't know how well it corresponds to reality, but they're definitely trying to be compassionate, understanding to the people who come before their courts with these incredible life stories. Anyway, it's a wonderful resource. So, yes, I, yeah. I very much look forward to that.
1: Well, thank you for the invitation. And I would say, as they're saying, Byzantine law for all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, one, one law for all. Yes. Uh, thank you, Daphne, so much for coming on. And it's a been a pleasure to read your work. And, and thank use you, it. so I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. And uh, good so... luck
1: with all the podcasts. And Thank you.
0: I intend to continue. Okay. Right, take care.
1: Yeah. Bye-bye.